the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 2 this Friday, March 26th, uh, we are um, we're going to do a couple couple things a little bit differently. First of all, in the third hour, we're going to be joined by Glenn Elmers, who um, had a piece at the American Mind. And, um, and it was all about the way we look at conservatism these days and why previous views of conservatism aren't going to do for the current situation that we're in. And he got tackled upon by the guys at the Bulwark, Charlie Sykes, the Bill Crystal Group, for being a fascist. Can you imagine? Claremont, fascist. Um, we'll, uh, we'll get into that with Glenn Elmers, the target of that uh, wrath in the next hour. But right now, it's a delight to bring on one of my favorite public intellectuals, one of my favorite people, and that's Pete Peterson, who is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and uh, so many things. You can follow him at Twitter at Pete4CA, the number four, at Pete4CA. Pete, happy Friday to you. And to you, sir. Great to be back with you. You too. One of the things I love about you is um, – we can uh, we can we can book you and, and like few other guests we don't have a topic you don't say what are we going to talk about you're like King Lear we'll pray and we'll sing and we'll tell old tales and we'll laugh right that's we, we, we can pretty much cover everything here can't we we can we can I always look forward to these conversations open ended I'll tell you there's two things that have been on my mind this week and I, I'd love to get your impressions of them first impressions of them. One is, um, you know, in the in the in the in the light of this horrible attack in Boulder, Colorado, uh, there there was this initial, you know, effort to paint it as another example of uh, of white male anger uh, and white supremacy. Until we found out that eh, this store was actually a store known to be frequented by kosher observant Jews and. It turned out to be a man of uh, Muslim faith from Syria. And, and that story just kind of dropped. It just kind of dropped as if the lives there were less important than some other lives, perhaps lives in Atlanta or lives in Minneapolis. That's, that's on my mind. And another thing, I'll just lay the groundwork here. This is a big one for me. Heroism. In all these tragedies, there's always a hero. And we never seem to focus on them. You know, when we focus on the perpetrator, we focus on the perpetrator, but we never seem to focus on the heroes. There was a hero here named Eric Talley, who was the cop first on the scene who got killed. And what struck me about him, Pete, is the only thing we knew knew about him, which was he was a 10-year veteran of the police force and he was 51. He had seven children. That's interesting. But what is it about a 41-year-old that wants to become a police officer? There's something interesting going on there. And this guy was a hero. And these are the kinds of lives we should be teaching and exploring, aren't they? 
No, you're right. You know, these are the virtues, right? Yep. These are the civic virtues that we often talk about. Uh, courage, bravery, loyalty, um, civility, um, patriotism. And you're right. Um, I am often asked, especially through my position here at the policy school, well, be you know, this, this must be quite a time to be at a policy school with all the polarization going on. But when you get the chance to see the students that come through here with their passion for wanting to make a better world on the other side, I mean, these are, these are the kinds of people uh, that really make it easy to get up in the morning. And so it is with stories like this police officer in Boulder. Um, these are the people that make decisions, sometimes even later in life, for public service. And uh, and you're right to say that these people and these stories and these virtues, as simple as they are, uh, and in fact because of their simplicity, That's it. Uh, need to be celebrated. And I'm so glad that you're bringing attention to it. Well, I wonder about some dark things in this, Pete. Um, we've had a problem with heroes in this culture for some time. We, we can go back as far as... Plato and the Bible to understand how important they are for children growing up. And I, this, this may be digging a, a deep hole here, but no one better to dig it with than you. <laughs> there are natural heroes children have, hardly without even being needed, hardly without even needing to be taught. Spacemen, astronauts, firemen, uh, obviously the cartoon superheroes of yore, but also once upon a time policemen. Kids wanted to be a policeman, and they knew that being a policeman was a good thing. This culture's done a pretty good, good job of running that down. Whereas in perhaps a better time, someone like David Dorn, you know, the retired officer who got killed mm -hmm. in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. or an Eric Talley, yeah. might have been a name more people would have been want to know more about and teach and learn from. Seems to me. Because at the same time you had that going on, I know this is, this is really going somewhere now. At the same time you had that going on, you had the movement of the left, which is all about what? Denigrating police and tearing down statues of heroes in this culture. Literally. Literally, not figuratively. I leave that to you to figure out for me. Well, I have to say, you know, I, I don't know if we've ever discussed this uh, together, this little part of my own life story, but I lived in Australia as a kid, and I still have family there. And so as a kid growing up, I was very influenced by kind of the, the United Kingdom and their view of the world. And there was there's a phrase in the different countries of, of, the, of the kingdom called the tall poppy syndrome. And the tall poppy syndrome is that uh, if anyone grows too tall, they need to be cut down. And I'm afraid that we're seeing some of that even – I mean, one of the great things that separated America from other countries is is that we've celebrated excellence as a culture. Uh, we're certainly not the first country to do that, but that is something that we've we've done. And these virtues, as you say, we have celebrated and the stories behind them. Even, even if there's a little bit of mythology in there, we've understood that mythology is important. You bet. And – uh, what we seem to be seeing uh, in some of the stories that you point out is 
a reticence to celebrate excellence uh, and these virtues. And a nation that has this much freedom demands an incredible amount of practiced virtue. Um, Otherwise, as we have discussed on more than a few occasions, if we're not self-governing, we will be other-governing. And that is a bad place to be. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And 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 you measure too, don't you, a society by who it esteems and who it mm-hmm. uh, who it I, I, idealizes. And and it's not a sophisticated point. You're in the college, but you're in the university and college and education business. Every administrator knows this. At least every college president knows this when they try and seek donations to recognize a, a certain benefactor or name, right? Uh, or, or, or name a building after or a pool or, 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 or a gymnasium after someone. They understand this. They get this. That's who they want to be known for and of and about. And it seems to me this was a great, great effort of the left that people say, Liebson, you're making too much of this. But I think when they start taking down our, our statues of our greats, the iconoclasm underneath all that is really part and parcel of not only rewriting our history but changing it and creating new heroes that I don't know are going to be very healthy for us on a going forward basis. Well, and at the same time, the level of hubris it demands yep. to say that uh, that uh, greatness and goodness begins with our generation and that everything preceding it needs to be uh, viewed through a different lens. Um, you know, that that as a culture, that, that cultural uh, pride um, can be very damaging and uh, because it, it, it assumes that beginning with us, we have set the template for what is, what is good and right uh, without acknowledging that it very may... It, it very may well be the case that 50, 60, 100 years hence uh, that we will be looked back upon uh, through different eyes as well. And so celebrating those, understanding that mythology is not a bad thing. It's not to say that it, can, it can't be, um, but, you know, the, the stories of George Washington and uh, you know, our founders and even the, the outright myths that we know about uh, are still valuable in teaching these lessons and holding certain standards that even if we're not able to to reach them, boy, you still want to be a culture that espouses those things. It's a great point. The cherry tree down. story may not be true, but it's to teach about honesty, which can't be Uh, illustrated by anything better. After one quick break, we will be right back with more from Pete Peterson of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We'll be right back. From the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, easy to uh, remember, website publicpolicy.pepperdine.com. Edu. We love checking in with Pete Peterson, who is that school's that graduate school's dean, uh, one of the uh, one of the great beacons of intellectual uh, credibility, honesty, truth, and seriousness in an otherwise uh, ocean of uh, postmodern and post postmodern crud. 
we love lifting up Pepperdine and we love talking to Pete. Um, Pete, we were we were talking before the break about the need and use for heroes, and you had made this point about how children learn, how ch- children learn virtue and character, and they they learn it a few different ways. Obviously, um, they learn it through example, but they learn it through the stories they're told as well, taught and told. And as you said, they don't even have to be true um, as long as the virtue they're taught is true. Um, and, and, and this has been understood by everyone until about 15, 20 years ago. Remember the work of Bruno, Bruno Bettelheim, Uses of Enchantment? And mm-hmm. he would talk about, you know, a child can learn truths through mythical fairy tales so long as those fairy tales enrich the important things that build a personality. And that's exactly what these old stories of yore used to do. They would do exactly that. They would, okay, the cherry tree thing is false, but it was about honesty. Right. And along with that, you know, there's a little bit of a broken windows theory uh, to civic virtue, Mm -hmm. right? So the, the old James Q hypothesis uh, borne out that as, he walked the streets of New York where there were places where there was graffiti that was not cleaned up, where there were actual broken windows not fixed. After a certain time, you began to see higher levels uh, of crime and felonies being committed as it became generally known that uh, these lower-level crimes were not going to be addressed. There was a certain feeling that uh, higher-level crimes could be committed. This the same kind of concept can be applied to exactly what we're talking about. That if these lessons around civic virtue uh, taught in the classroom, taught through myths, if they're not then backed up by a culture that, even if it doesn't practice them perfectly, at least holds them up and agrees upon them. Right, it esteems as, these things. Right, one hopes. Yes, yeah, right. Then you're going to see broken windows. Uh, in our public square, and I think it's fair to say that we are now living in a public square with a number of of broken windows where there doesn't seem to be many guardrails about not only what can be discussed, but but how it can be discussed. I I don't know if I'm saying this originally or if I'm stealing it from Dennis Prager, but I'll just say that a society that has a problem with Dr. Seuss but not Cardi B is is a sick society. Yeah, it's a very yeah, and that is exactly what are what are we celebrating? What are we holding up? And and what are the what are the principles um, that that we celebrate? Uh, I'm a big fan of Glenn Lowry, the the uh, economics professor at Brown University, and he made this exact same point recently that some of these things that are held up particularly in pop culture as being important or exemplary are really anything but, but it speaks to um, the the broader issues of the public square and, and what do we hold up as important stories and important virtues. When there was a campaign in the early 90s, I think it was, to kind of ask Hollywood and the music industry to clean up its act a little bit 
and stop with the celebration of songs that celebrate stop with the promulgation of songs that celebrate rape and misogyny and explicit uh, uh, sexual acts. Um, one of that that was a campaign of a civil rights activist named C. Dolores Tucker. Uh, mm-hmm. Joe Lieberman joined the cause, and William Bennett. And they would go to these major corporations, uh, stockholders meetings, to talk to the CEO of, say, Sony, Sony Records. And you know what? They didn't know what they were talking about because they didn't let their own children listen to the records. Talk about the virtue paid to vice here, huh? The tribute of of, of uh, that vice pays to virtue, huh? No, that's exactly right. And, of course, when we extrapolate from there even to today about the – the use of smartphones yeah. and yeah. various parts of technology, and then we come to realize that founders of of this revolution, like a Steve Jobs yeah. and a Bill Gates and others, do not allow or didn't allow their kids yeah. to have access to a yeah. smartphone until they were well into their teenage years. Yet, nonetheless, you know they're all about glorifying the importance of these platforms and devices. Uh, very much. A similar thing, and I think that is another part of this as well. Is we've we we can't lose sight of the fact that one of the things that's different about that time in the '90s to today is the medium, in some ways, has become the message mm-hmm. once again. Mm-hmm. And to understand that it's not just the content, but also the delivery vehicles um, that are being used. Uh, we 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 need to, as parents and as those who care about the future of our public square, also really need to be looking at technology and the role that it's playing in all the challenges we're facing. Huge, because social media, I'd love you to sound off on a little more of this, the social media aspect of this. If you want to find places of broken windows – of blight. You can, and we know where to go in L.A. to see it, and we know where to go in New York to see it, and some other places, perhaps Portland and Seattle and Chicago, name any number of cities. We know where to go to see it. Uh, But we also knew that those tended to be, in times past, segregated places, not racially segregated, but off the beaten path, off the track, other side of the tracks, if you will, south something, right? Um, You get to social media, and um, there there are no geographical lines anymore. No, that's right. And again, no no boundaries on on speech either, on how things are being addressed. Uh, My wife and I watched the the documentary, The Social Dilemma, the other day. I don't know if you've seen that, Seth, but I, I could not recommend that more highly to your listeners, especially listeners who are parents of of children and teens, Um, one of the many important points made in that documentary is that we get introduced to someone named Tristan Harris, who was a former engineer for Google and since left and has now made it his life mission to let the broader public understand uh, the different uh, parts of technology that are meant to essentially addict you to the messages and the platforms themselves. Hold that thought, Pete. That's an important yep. one. I got to take a quick break. I'd like to come back on it. I'm reminded, of course, of the line just now from Screw Tape. Uh, your po- the the point here, Wormwood, is to fuddle them. You must fuddle them. 
great word, fuddle. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Pete Peterson, the dean of the public of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. His uh, his school is the embodiment of uh, what Wordsworth meant when he said, uh, "What we have loved, others will love, but we must teach them how." Pepperdine teaches you how. We'll be right back. We're visiting with uh, Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and uh, talking a little bit about, uh, well, a few different things and uh, the way children are brought up in our culture today. That is, uh, Pete, if I understand you right, deliberately or was deliberately designed to be of continual distraction when it comes to things like social media. Uh, Just a small data point I looked up over the break. In the 1970s, 60% of high school seniors said they read a book or a magazine every day. It's 10% now. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, we look at the hours spent on social media, um, you know, today, especially by uh, teens and younger. Um, You know, we still only have 24 hours in a day. That still has not changed since the 70s. And so it's a matter of how we spend our time. And and I mentioned before this social dilemma documentary yeah. and the work of one Tristan Harris, who, yeah. again, has made it his life mission to call these things out. And one of the very effective images that he uses that's, that's actually shown as a little uh, kind of vignette that plays its way out through the documentary is that imagine you're a 14-year-old kid and you have been given a smartphone and now have access to various apps, uh, whether they be social media or games or whatever the case is, you need to first begin by realizing there's a team of 100 PhD computer science engineers on the other side of that app who are doing everything they can to keep you connected to it. Wow. And in that, it's not really a fair fight. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really, I thought, a, a great way of understanding what the stakes are, yeah. and uh, both as parents, but even as as teens, as those that uh, are now, as they call them, digital natives that mm-hmm. have grown up mm-hmm. from birth with all this technology around them. Um, it's not really a fair fight because the 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 goal of these developers, uh, extremely smart people. Mm-hmm. Uh, is to keep you connected uh, to these apps and games. How much of a disfavor did we do to our children over the last year by once recognizing what you're saying and trying to get our arms around it, i.e. ensuring that our children had less screen time? How much Mm -hmm. of a disfavor did we do to our children this last year by taking, taking them out of, yanking them out of social interactions and in-person educational instruction time to send them back to more time on a screen. Yeah, I'm afraid, Seth, those costs are incalculable, and, and we'll, but we will be calculating those costs for years to come. Uh, we've discussed many of the mental health challenges uh, that we've already been able to document and understand but the other issues, um, I'm afraid, may still be 
years in the understanding. Um, and, and unfortunately, those challenges, uh, I believe, are going to be felt most by the youngest. And so as they make their way through those uh, very important preteen years, the impact of this last year and the inability of kids to socialize, um, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, we may be seeing instances where some of that very important uh, growth in socialization skills has been stunted. Uh, suffice to say, it's something we're going to have to keep very, a very close eye on um, in the coming year. One one of the things I understand, and I and I guess I picked up on it perhaps in one of our earlier segments today, Pete, is what you see from students at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. And I'm going to guess, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I don't mean it as a negative thing, as a pejorative, um, I'm going to guess that there's a certain self-selection of people who want to go to your School of Public Policy. And if that's true... I would love to know, perhaps on the other side of this break, which we're heading into, I would love to know what you hear from the kinds of things your kinds of students want to do to save and change the world. When Mm. you say these kids are here to be engaged civically, to make a difference in the world, maybe not be heroes, but to do things that might be considered heroic in the long haul, what are those things? What are those motivations? What are those ends? Might you say a few words about what you're seeing in those – Bright 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24-year-old brains? Would love to. Thanks, Pete. It is inspiring. Good, good, good. We'll be right back with more from Pete Peterson of Pepperdine. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Talking to Pete Peterson, and we were talking about young people and what inspires them when they go out to uh, change the world. Uh, we see certain things that take place on the streets, but there are certain things going on with a different cohort, the kind that Pete, um, Pete himself sees more regularly at places like his School of Public Policy at Pepperdine. When they want to go change the world, Pete, when they want to engage in acts that might lead to um, – heroic results what what is it that motivates them what is it they're interested in doing one of the things about the policy school curriculum here which i know we've discussed before was the late great james q wilson who was so foundational in helping to design it is that it's uh, what we call a one degree five track uh set of courses and so it's a single master's of public policy degree but within that you have five different course uh, essentially professional tracks you can take, everything from international relations, national security, uh, to state and local government. And so the students that come sometimes have a, a sense of what they want to do. You know, we'll have a student that comes that I definitely want to go work at the State Department, definitely want to go work at the FBI or one of the intel agencies, or I definitely want to go work for the city of Phoenix or whatever the case might be. But Invariably, what happens is we try to expose all of the students here to the variety of different career paths made available by the degree. And we will, again, invariably see uh, that students coming say, coming to us saying, oh, I definitely know I'm going to go work at the state capitol or I'm definitely going to go work in Washington, D.C., take a course or hear a speaker, 
that makes them think, well, you know, maybe maybe foreign policy is a place for me, or maybe a international NGO or a DC-based think tank or a, a local government is is really where I want to go. And I have to say, and I I think this is a, a broadly very conservative, is that we are we are seeing over the last couple of years an increasing number of our students with an interest in working in local government. Um, I, it, it, it certainly is something that we do a lot of work in that area, uh, not only for opportunities here in California, but across the country. Um, but but students have become in some ways a little bit, uh, I don't know if jaundiced is the right word, but at least a bit uh, questioning of what impact they can have on the big, what the kids would say, meta issues uh, at play in Washington, D.C., and have become, I think, increasingly aware that uh, you can still have an impact in local communities and do that either through locally-based nonprofits working on various issues or even working for local government. So, um, you know, that that's the kind of passion that we see coming, the different career paths they can take. And, again, I think increasingly we're seeing students, while well, we'll always send kids out to D.C., um, increasingly shift their focus towards uh, what they might be able to do in their local communities. Because there is a lot to do there, and I'm thinking yeah. of the surrounding community, L.A. The most impressive young person I met in the last five years was in this very studio a week ago, Pete. <laughs> and you may know who he is. You may not, but you may. His name is Scott Pressler. Yeah. He's 32 years old. He has a million followers on Twitter. He was in Phoenix to do a registration, a voting registration drive, and he came by for about an hour and we visited. And he said, you know, he got his start here in um, conservative activism Mm -hmm. by simply going to major cities that had dilapidated, trashy neighborhoods, literally trashy neighborhoods, tweeting to small groups that he was going with trash bags and just walking the streets yeah. and picking up trash. Yeah. And no, he has now picked up 29 tons of trash in America. Yeah. And if he didn't have a MAGA hat, which he wears, yeah. he would have been on the cover of Newsweek. He would have been our Greta Thunberg. <laughs> no, really. I think he really would have. He's actually had a greater impact. Right. <laughs> and had a greater impact on the environment, no less. Right, right, right. No, that's absolutely right. Again, I, I think that uh, and, and I would never dissuade any of our students who, who want to go work on Capitol Hill or go work at Heritage or AEI or any places where we have relationships um, would never dissuade them from doing that. But I, again, I do have to say that we're 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 continuing to see a growing number of students saying, hey, you know, these issues that I care about actually are played out at a local level, and they're at a scale that I can actually have an impact on them, and so this is where I want to go. That's exactly right. Perfect. And uh, and that hero, perhaps, they becoming a hero doing something quiet and local, I mean, we once knew this, Pericles said heroes have the whole earth for their tomb, right? <laughs> they don't need yeah. to uh they don't need to become one in Washington DC. Well that's where the poppies get cut that, off. Yeah. Well and just to 
refer back to that Boulder police officer yeah. that we began our conversation. Yeah. This is a local government employee. Eric Talley, you bet. By, mm-hmm. by any other name. Yeah. And here he is, again, uh, a hero. Yeah. Yeah. Let me do this uh, real quick. I'm curious about this on this discussion of heroes. We have a caller who wants to weigh in. Rob, and surprise, you're on with Dean Pete Peterson from Pepperdine. Rob. Uh, hi, hi uh, Dean Peterson. Uh, thanks for taking my call, and happy Friday to both of you. Um, I've, I've thought a lot about all of this. I'm a, a baby boomer, and uh, that means that I'm part of the TV generation. And I believe that many of the people that are looking for heroes, I, I think there are a lot of influencers out there. I also think there's a lot of confusion out there because I believe that a lot of what we're seeing here, at least in the last 10 or 15 years, has been both media-driven and education-driven. Um, and there there was mentioning, I think, Pete, you'd mentioned about how smart a lot of these uh, IT professionals are, but what's missing is wisdom. They, they, yep. They're smart, but they're not wise. And growing up, you know, in the 50s and 60s, I mean, we had our heroes of, you know, Winston Churchill, World War II guys, people who wrote books that mattered. Um, we had, uh, yeah, the Supermans, the Roy Rogers, the Lone Ranger, and um, and most importantly, in my case, my dad. Uh, back in the 60s, you know, again, my dad, we had uh, Martin Luther King, Hank Aaron. In the 70s, we had, uh, well, in my case, because I was at the Naval Academy, we had uh, a lot of the Vietnam POWs. Mm. Um, and I also remember reading The Bridges to Tokori by James Michener, uh, where, you know, the, at the end of the book and the movie, uh, the, the uh, I don't know if it's the admiral, the commanding officer of the ship says, where do we get such men? Well, they've always been here. And I think Ronald Reagan had mentioned that at one point. So I think what, what's happening is that you know, there are people who have the wrong heroes who, aren't, who have no value. That, that's an important point. Um, let me yep. do this as we hit the break. Let me have Pete respond to that on the other side of the break, if we can. The hero and the anti-hero. One of the secrets of the Marvel or DC comics was, right, every hero required an anti-hero. The call to heroism requires something baleful, doesn't it? Um, That's kind of a big theological point, but we'll have Pete wrap a bow on it when we come back. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Pete Peterson with us this hour. Uh, Pete, um, Rob was making some points about what heroes used to be in our society, where they came from, uh, how they were identified, and um, and and it's just it's it's an interesting thing about them. Most of them are called to a duty to save something or a world to save a world from 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 a bad thing happening. Military heroes, political leaders like Winston Churchill, uh, cowboy westerns, uh, uh, you know, high noon. Heroes and these kinds saving the community, they usually require a bad person or an anti, an anti-hero, and it's a it's an odd thing about our society that elevates the anti-heroes, isn't it? Um, the Jussie Smollett's, if you will, the card. Yeah, there's bees. that, and 
you know, and I think you're right. There, there's a certain biblical narrative yeah. here that, that yeah. may be worth exploring at some point. But suffice it to say, I, I think actually the bigger issue, to go back to Rob's question, is is not not so much the holding up of you know the Jesse Smollett's of this world as problematic as that is for a a political culture. It's through these technology platforms is the holding up of self mm. above all things. And, you know, we've discussed here the, the great Tocquevillian, what I call the, the, the Tocquevillian prophecy about if, if a democratic nation, small d Democrat, was, uh, was, was going to head into uh, perilous times, it was going to be because of the gradual focus on self at the exclusion of all others, uh-huh. certainly at the exclusion of these higher principles and higher causes and higher callings. And again, not to belabor this social dilemma movie and some of the work of folks like Tristan Harris and others, but these platforms do have a way, the medium is the message in this sense that the focus becomes very individualized. We control almost completely the influencers, news sources, other things that surround us, um, and and believe in that uh, that that we are sort of the the king of our own domain. And of course, that that can never be the perspective in a in a political culture that demands cooperation, collaboration, and and a and an ascent to these higher principles. Yeah, it's not the tall poppy you want to esteem, is right. it? Exactly. Right. We'll put a cap on that. Pete Peterson, always wonderful visiting with you, sir. Have a blessed weekend. You too, Seth. Great to be with you. Godspeed to you. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. They say the Claremont Institute, which to me is the think tank nonpareil, they say over at the Bulwark that it is a fascist outfit because of an article by Glenn Elmers entitled Conservatism is No Longer Enough. Well, Glenn Elmers and I were in grad school together, and he's going to be our guest coming up in response. We'll be right back.